Thank you, Blake. Good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody today. Uh, Today we are going to be, it's the last Sunday of the month, so we're going to be celebrating communion. So I just want to make sure everybody got one of these COVID-approved things. We'll need that at the end of the teaching. If you're watching online, you'll need to find, uh, scour around the house, get something that is going to be symbolic of food and drink, the elements of life. And uh, we'll get into that after the teaching. But uh, this morning we're going to be returning to our study in the Gospel of Luke uh, it's Palm Sunday, and uh, you know sometimes as we're going through books of the Bible, it'll land just right, and you know we're going to deal with Palm Sunday and the scriptures that are associated with it. We're we're not going to be doing that today. I'm not going to skip ahead in the story to Jesus's uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's what Palm Su- Sunday is celebrating. But thematically, we're close because we're in a section where Jesus is describing for us in a sermon that he's giving, describing. Uh, you know, what the, the, the ethos of his kingdom is. We've been considering what life will be like uh, when we live with Jesus as king, as the one who has authority over our lives, as the one who uh, calls the shots. And uh, we've been considering that for the last three Sundays as we've been reading Jesus's Sermon on the Plain. It's the parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's it's distinctly different in Luke's gospel than it is Matthew's. Last week, we worked our way through the divine ethos that Jesus presents, that of sacrificial love and of generosity that moves beyond the bounds of what we would expect, given to those that we would oftentimes think aren't necessarily deserving of that kindness or that love, just like God provided love and grace to us as people who didn't deserve it. Uh, And Jesus, you know, this is what we're realizing as we're going through this. Jesus did not come along dictating a a new religion to us. What he did was give us a clearer view on what it really means to be human, what it means to be a person who lives the way that God originally intended life to be, to reflect that into this world. So today we're going to continue our examination of his sermon. We're going to find that we're prompted to ask some questions, or at least you're going to find that I'm going to prompt you to ask some questions because it prompted me to ask some questions as I was going through the text. Uh, Questions that can help us locate where we are uh, in our pursuit of God's purposes. Are we just hearing what it is that Jesus had to say, or are we living this out? Whose patterns are we following in, in life? Whose life is it that we're looking at? What sort of fruit is 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 being born in my life from the way that I'm living? And what's the foundation that I have for the life that I choose to live? Those are some pretty important, albeit sometimes uncomfortable questions, but they're, they're important and vital steps that we need to take in examining ourselves as we move forward towards an honest faith, towards a, a life that embraces all that it is that God has for us. So we're going to jump into this today and see what we discover. So if you're there in Luke chapter 6, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 39. Jesus is still talking. It says, Jesus gave the following illustration. Can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. Okay, So this is really interesting. So the NLT, the New Living Translation, that's what we're reading from here, calls these illustrations. Most translations will use the traditional word parable uh, at this point. 
really, it's interesting because they're, they're not either one of those. They're, they're actually riddles. They're, it's, it's, it's kind of a, and it's, it's meant to be humorous, what Jesus says here. They're so familiar. The things that Jesus says in this part are so familiar to us now that, you know, a lot of the bite has been dulled on it. But the image that he gives us here is basically a verbal cartoon. I mean, you know, if you let it play out in your mind, imagine a guy who's walking along and suddenly his hat falls down over his eyes and he can't see. And another man is walking behind him and he's got a huge package that is blocking his vision. But when he bumps into the first man, he says, hey, I know how to get you home. Come on, follow me. And, and they both head off and step right off the road and into a ditch. It's actually slapstick humor when you look at it the way that it is that it's being represented here. The absurdity of the situation is what makes it funny. But what's his point? I mean, I'm sure that, you know, Jesus appreciated a chuckle if he got that when he was saying that. But why was he saying it? He uncharacteristically explains it in verse 40. He's talking about teachers and students, or we could say he's talking about rabbis and disciples, specifically the recognition of our own need to be taught. The, the imagery of a limited ability to see reminds us that as humans, we've got a very, very small ability to perceive the reality that's around us. I mean, that's just, that's honestly, that's not even, that's just science. I mean, we've got such a limited band of perception as human beings in this world. But this is what Jesus is talking about, that as human beings frail and broken in this place, we do need help with this. But there is an importance as to who it is that's doing the teaching. And that's what Jesus is getting across. The one who shows the way must first be able to see the way if you're actually going to move towards a significant improvement in life. Now, many, if not most scholars, believe that Jesus is making a critical statement about the Pharisees here. And I don't see any reason why we would question that. That's kind of been the dynamic going through the Gospels all along. Those in religious authority have been opposing him. And this is Jesus's, you know, kind of subtle way of trying to get to them. Uh, but each of these parables that he's going to be talking about, these riddles, uh, actually corresponds to rival visions that had been accepted as the norm in his days, accepted ideas about God's kingdom, proposed solutions for life that had been there. But, but as Jesus will point out, those proposed solutions kind of leave the real problem uh, untouched. I can easily see this as Jesus's jab at the Pharisees, you know, basically saying there's no use in following the Pharisees' teaching because all you'll end up being is another Pharisee. And, you know, we got plenty of those. So while Jesus explains what the parable is about, he doesn't spell out the answer to the question that emerges from it. And the question is as relevant today as it was in the original context in which Jesus gave this, one that we would be wise to pose to ourselves as we look at this section. And that is, whose direction am I following in life? Or we could even say, who am I allowing to direct me in life? We've talked about this so much, I don't want to belabor the point. But we live in a world with so many voices calling for our attention everywhere and at all times. We have so many differing views uh, on what will make the world a better place. So many trying to influence and mold us to their perception and their value set and their priorities. It's hard to know. Jesus is making it clear here that who we listen to and whose instruction we follow is actually vitally important 
towards moving towards stability and, and wholeness. And let's be clear about this. Jesus is basically putting himself in the position of the teacher over against every other voice. I mean, this is what Jesus is getting across in here. There's really no way around that. His, he's saying in this, is the way home. His is the way to keep you out of the ditch. His teachings lead to life. His example provides us with an insight on what it means to be human beings as God intended us to be. And, you know, he couches it in humor, but it's really a big and a bold statement for Jesus to make at that time. He's basically saying himself on one side and every other voice arrayed on the other. It's sort of his version of, of Proverbs 12, uh, 14, 12. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. It leads to nothing. The Pharisees were saying things that seemed to make sense. Most people had accepted the, the philosophies, the teachings, the doctrines of the Pharisees at that time. But Jesus is saying they're going, they're going the wrong way. Their limited view had them heading for a ditch in this. And Jesus is saying in this, he provides the full view that we need in order to, to live as God intended. He's, you know, what he provides doesn't mean that we get everything. It doesn't mean that we know everything once we encounter Jesus. But what it means is we know what we need to know if we're going to find life in God. So, you know, it's Jesus arrayed against every other teacher. But Rob, we're sitting here listening to you right now. Should we not be doing that? Aren't you just another voice in the whole mix? Well, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, the, the, Jesus is setting himself as distinct from every other teacher, but he's not trying to make us afraid of other voices in this. He's telling us that he is the baseline by which we determine the wisdom of every other teacher that we hear. Do you get that? It's it's saying that that he's going to be providing us the, the priorities, the values, and the direction in life, and whatever we hear has to be measured against what we've heard from him. So that's the question we ask ourselves. How, you know, how does what I'm hearing compare with Jesus? I'm not afraid, you know, I'm not afraid to read or listen to anybody's perspective. That's, that's, I, don't, I don't want us to ever walk away from here with that kind of a mindset. I've had conversations with people before who, you know, have told me kind of sheepishly about an author that they're listening to or they've been reading and as though they're expecting me to try to, you know, disapprove of that or warn them away from that. But I just don't feel like there's anything healthy about that kind of fear. I don't think that's whatever God intended for us in this. I believe and I trust that the Holy Spirit is able to guide us just as Jesus promised that he would. So I can read all kinds of things. I'll read all kinds of things. It doesn't mean I agree with everything I read. It just means that I'm not afraid to read. But I also know very well what it is that Jesus taught and what it is that Jesus did in his life so that I have something that I'm able to compare that to. I have a standard by which I determine whether or not uh, I'm, what I'm taking in is wisdom or not. Now, see, that's the important qualifier on that. How well do we know Jesus? How well do we know what his teachings, his actions, his values are? We have to know that if we're going to be able to use him as a standard. So I apply that to everything that's presented to me. Where will this perspective take me? As I'm reading this, as I'm listening to this, where will this take me? Is it representative of the values 
that Jesus expressed? Can I imagine Jesus doing or saying the things that I'm taking in as, as wisdom at that point? Who will I resemble if I follow this course in life? Will it resemble Christ or will it just represent another form of human wisdom? Where are all of these many voices leading me? Where are they wanting to take me? And there's so many, as I said, voices, voices of popular culture, the voices of social media, the voices of political pundits. Who will I look like if I allow those things to mold me? If I set up my values in mirror of those things? Jesus is the baseline that we come back to. Jesus is the one who provides us the words of eternal life as Peter worded it. That's the standard by which we measure anything that we hear or take in. So those seem like important questions in my thinking for us to ask ourselves as we follow any given path in this life. We don't ask them out of fear, but like explorers who look at a compass, who, you know, in following something that seemed interesting, they look back at the compass to determine, okay, but where is this heading me? I've got to get back to the course that I was on. All right, well, Jesus presents another humorous vignette here, verse 41. It says, why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you've got a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And again, you know, it has to play out in our minds what it is that he's saying here, but he's using hyperbole, you know, an exaggeration to make a point. So we imagine a scenario, a guy's out and he's sawing a law, you know, sawing a, a board somewhere and all of a sudden a piece of sawdust flies up and gets in his eye and he backs away and he's going, ow, 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 like that. Another guy runs over to him and says, here, here, let me help you. I can take care of you. I know what you need. I'll fix you. And when we look up, we realize the guy that runs over there's got a two by four sitting out of his eye socket. That's cartoon material right there. I mean, this is Ren and Stimpy or Rick and Morty stuff. I mean, the imagery would is is funny it would be disturbing in real life but it's funny when we let it play out in its absurdity but it also doesn't take much to realize what jesus is getting at here he's been challenging us to embrace his teachings and to live those teachings out but here he's making it clear that we're called to live this out in our own lives not our neighbor's life So this kind of builds off his first story because he's saying, you know, can you actually see well enough to lead and much less criticize somebody else for for their their walk? And it urges another question that we have to ask ourselves, something that comes back to this this level of self-examination. And that is, whose life am I examining? Who do I spend my time examining in, in life? The story is so familiar, it endures because it's such a clever way of exposing the human tendency to deflect away from our own issues by focusing on someone else's issues in life. It's again clear to me that, that Jesus has the Pharisees in view in this story. Pharisees were, were trying to perfect obedience to the law and they had so many rules and regulations that they had added. And, and yet, in, in, in the midst of all of that, they were missing the, the major point of the law itself. They were trying to separate Israel from all of the Gentile nations through these extreme measures of holiness when God had actually called them to be a light 
to the nations. It wasn't to get them extracted from the nations. It was to be there, to guide the nations. They were hunting for specks in everyone's eyes and yet failing to notice this massive plank of disobedience in their own eye. Of course, this story is still relevant today. It's beyond, you know, that spills the banks of any culture or time or whatever because this speaks to human tendencies, human nature. And I would say that the evangelical church has certainly fallen into the same trouble through my whole lifetime of experience with it. Because when you think of the reputation that we have as the American evangelical church, we are known for making a big deal out of small details while the main point of the good news gets missed altogether. <laughs> you think about the average person in the United States, they're, they're thinking about what it is that we represent as the church, and it's usually a handful of moral issues instead of the good news that Jesus came to declare to this world. But it would be the very same kind of thing that Jesus is talking about if we just point our finger at the institution of church and fail to apply what it is he's saying to ourselves as individuals. (laughs) So when it comes to this kind of behavior, we have to look in the mirror. Can't look anywhere else. We have to look in the mirror and think about our own lives because it's entirely too easy to get our focus on our neighbor to pinpoint exactly where they're going wrong and how they did it improperly. And in so doing, we deflect any self-examination that could possibly reveal less than flattering things about our own lives and our own hearts as we live our lives. Maybe sometimes it's not deflection. Maybe sometimes it's actually projection. Uh, where What we see in someone else is, is something that we recognize or maybe that we're afraid of being in our own lives, in our own hearts and experience. So we avoid that by scrutinizing the other person. We, we just landed a probe on Mars or a, or a rover on Mars. I know you're probably thinking non sequitur, Rob, but, uh, uh, you know, my son was saying to me the other day that, uh, you know, Mars right now is a planet entirely inhabited by robots, which is fascinating, but that's not the point. I remember, I remember when I was a kid, and this is a long time ago, back in the 60s, I had gone to the library uh, and I'd gotten a book uh, out of the library on Mars, and the book was really old then, so in the 60s, it probably was from the 40s or whatever. And I was looking at all these pictures, and in the book, they had quoted uh, Percival Lowell, who was a famed astronomer from the 1800s. And he was a guy who was absolutely sure that he had observed canals on the surface of Mars, canals that had been dug out and were, you know, there. And he, from his perspective, anybody remember that in the old, old days, reading about canals on Mars and, and how, you know, in, in his view that, you know, he believed that was proof of an earlier civilization of alien life that had been on that planet. Uh, strangely, he was the only one who ever saw those. Uh, and of course, we've mapped the surface of Mars and we know there's no such canals. But Lowell was convinced. And, and not only that, he sa- stated that he saw these strange spokes on the planet Venus that emanated from the poles. And they were always facing Earth every time he saw it, which made him think that Earth is in geosynchronous orbit with Venus. And that's, you know, just pretty amazing. And again, he was the only one who saw them. And it wasn't until explaining that he had narrowed the aperture of his 24-inch telescope down to three inches to reduce the glare that optometrists heard that 
And they realized that Lowell had unwittingly set his telescope up to mimic that of an ophthalmoscope, which is an instrument that is used to be able to to look and examine the inside of an eyeball. So the lines that he thought he was seeing on Mars and Venus were actually the shadows of the blood vessels in his own retina. Those things we are sure we know about our neighbor that are so messed up and so wildly wrong. Those corrupt motives, those bad intents, they may very well be shadows cast from our own struggles in this broken world. So if we find ourselves angry or obsessing about the behavior of someone else, wanting to complain about them to others, wanting to put them down, maybe we should ask, whose life am I looking at? more intensely here? What are my habits and patterns that are unflattering or unhelpful? And how might I want God to heal me before I spend any time trying to fix someone else? Can you imagine, can you imagine what the history of the church could have been like had we actually put these things into practice? (laughs) It's just a, you know, it's just a good reminder that this is not easy. <laughs> this is not an easy thing to do. But still, we read his words and we're reminded of this today. And we know today we'll put this into practice and we'll commit this before God. God, remind me to look at me, to examine me, and to put all of your children into your hands where they're safest. All right, moving on. Verse 43 it says, A good tree can't produce bad fruit. And a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes aren't picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. Now, Fruit is one of the most commonly used metaphors in the New Testament. It's used 66 times as an image of a person's character uh, that's exhibited. The thing is, both figuratively and literally, we cannot look at this as a strict rule because, you know, we know very well there are sometimes good trees that produce malformed fruit or even bad fruit that rots doesn't necessarily indict the entire tree. And we know that, you know, even it's a figurative sense, there are times when good people do bad things and vice versa. So he's not trying to come up with an ipso facto rule in this. It's a broad stroke image to make a point. And the point is urging another question for us. And that is what are my words and my actions generating in the world around me? Jesus says that what we find on the outside is a good indication of what a person is on the inside, which is interesting because sometimes the opposite of this is stated in the Bible. Humans look at the, you know, the outside of a person's activity, but God examines the heart and indicating that sometimes it can look good on the outside, but God sees something else. Uh, but here we see that the opposite is stated as true. And as Christians, as followers of Christ, we are good news people. We've talked about that a, a lot. And when we think about the way that we carry ourselves in this world, how it is that we interact with other people, our fellow human beings, what is it that's generated in that? What are we generating? What is the, you know, what is the, the product 
of, of that interaction that we have with our fellow human. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the message, put it this way. It's, it's who you are, not what you do, what, not what you say and do that counts. Your true being brims over into true words and deeds. In other words, we really can't hide who we really are. No matter what image we try to project to others, who we really are eventually will come out, will come to light somewhere along the way in the things that we say and do. Which is, again, fascinating because it just reinforces the reality that Jesus did not come to set up moral reform. Because moral reform would be just as useless as as tying grapes onto a thicket. The real issues, the real problems are never dealt with if we just try to reform the outward activity. If all we ever do is, is, is you know, uh, try to, to modify our behavior, the issue that, that emanated that behavior never gets dealt with. And so this is the concept that he's getting across. And, you know, again, he's got a larger audience and a larger image in mind, especially with the nation of Israel in this. But it doesn't negate the personal application of all... I ever do is chase after my lusts. If, if all I ever do is spew hatred for things that I don't like, or how does that connect with the good news? If all I do is take up causes that bring about more and more division in this world, how is that reflective of the good that God has done? I'm hoping in my heart. God is intending an inner transformation that works its way out, not outward conformity that masks what's within. God wants to change us from the inside out. Now, like, don't get me wrong on this again. That's why I wanted to qualify this. Nobody does this well. No, nobody in this room does this well. So we're going to have bad days uh, along the line, uh, uh, you know, and, and we don't want to be thrown by that. But there, if, if there's nothing in our lives except the same broken patterns of this world, then Jesus is saying here, that's cause for concern. That's cause for a moment of pause. Wait a minute. What is it that my life is really about? As we examine our own lives, as we were taught to, let's pay attention then to how it is that we respond to others, who, what our priorities, what our values are as we live this life. It, you know, it may just be that we're not exercising the discipline of following the Spirit's lead because the Holy Spirit is there to convict and to guide us and to lead us and to reshape us. But we have to respond to that. We have to follow that. That requires discipline. It's really easy just to tumble along with the broken currents of a fractured world. But Jesus calls us up to this higher life, a better life than that. Okay, we'll finish up this chapter, uh, verse 46. Jesus says, Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, When you don't do what I say, I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against the house, it stands firm because it's well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Okay, so 
Jesus ends his sermon with this parable that, I mean, that's got a pretty clear warning, and there's not a whole lot of speculation we have to do about this. You know, what does he mean by listen? What does he mean about his words? You know, we can kind of figure that out. That his words are only helpful to us if we put them into practice, if we accept his model for life and adopt that as our own, obviously, as a transformative work of the Holy Spirit within us. The, the internal change that God provides for our hearts still requires that we put Christ's teachings and values into practice. And of course, practice takes time and repetition. Practice. I think that's one of those things we don't really think about nearly enough as believers. We are called disciples. And the idea behind that is we've taken up the discipline of following these teachings and then we put those teachings into practice into our lives. It doesn't mean that we wake up one day and finally I am super Christian. It means that each day we have to get up and pick up our cross and put into practice those things that we've heard. It's, it's all part of it. It's part of, of this. But he's calling us to a commitment to to live out his teachings in everyday life. And so this, again, prompts a question in my mind. And that question is, what are my life choices founded on? We can talk about the good Lord, the good old good Lord above all day long. But what does that really even mean? When we call Jesus Lord, if we refer to Jesus as Lord, what does that mean? The term in the Greek is applied to someone who has authority over us, someone to whose authority we have submitted our lives. That's the whole concept of Lord. When we bandy that word about, there's something deeper there than just a title. There's an implication about what our life has done in response. Now, we do have to remember that Jesus has an immediate view of the nation of Israel when he's saying these things. It's a warning to them. You know, if they call God Lord, but when he sends his king and, and presents the truth to them, if they're not following that path, if they're not building on that, accepting what it is that he said and founding their understanding of God on that, then then they're going to remain on this shaky ground, which will lead to ruin when the storm comes. And of course, that's exactly what happened to Israel in 70 AD when the flood of the Roman armies moved in, surrounded the city, and it collapsed, as Jesus described, in a heap of ruins. But it still has personal and individual ramifications for us as well. And, And realize this wasn't a threat that Jesus was leveling at Israel nor is it a threat that he's leveling at us. You know, do what I say or else. It's not that. This is Jesus inviting us into stability. Who doesn't want stability in life? The kind of life that he described at the outset of the sermon. Remember when he was saying you're blessed when you're poor. Well, how is that possible? Because blessing depends on something greater, transcendent than just our circumstances that we're going through. Regardless of what's going on, building on the rock of Jesus' teachings, it's not going to insulate us from trouble. It's not going to keep us from ever going through storms in life. Storms are going to happen, but it provides us stability in the midst of that trouble because we know who we are at that point. Something that the selfish patterns of this world can never do will never provide us with that sort of stability. Storms happen no matter who we call Lord. Storms are going to happen in life. 
But Jesus is telling us that storms can be endured and even triumphed over by applying his principles to life, by applying what it is that he taught us about our value and our meaning and our purpose here in this world. Instead of seeing ourselves as the perpetual victim of this terribly mean world, we know who we are. We know who we belong to. We know where we're going in this. We're part of a bigger story that has a really good ending, regardless of what it is that we're facing now. Jesus calls us to this radical commitment, but in this commitment, we actually find the things that we're striving for and aching for in life. We find that stability that each of us longs for. We find a sense of meaning and value and purpose that everybody's looking for. To have a life founded on God's eternal love with, uh, for us, that's a life that can endure. That, that's a life that can reflect faith, hope, and love into this world, not just add to the chaos, but bring something significantly healing and better to this world. So let's embrace this life that he calls us to. Let's, let's find what it really means to be human in following what it is that Jesus has taught us. Let's commit to that, not just to hear this stuff, but to build our lives on it as the Spirit enables us. Right on?